and welcome to this week's Wildlife Matters podcast with me, Nigel Palmer. I'm your host for today's exciting episode. But before we get underway, I just want to say a huge hello to all the new listeners that are joining us on this podcast. And I hope many of you uh, came over from the last one where we had record numbers of downloads. So I'd like to really thank you for your kind words and your kind support. But for now, let's get on and tell you what's coming up on this week's Wildlife Matters podcast. Well, firstly, on Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be looking at a habitat, which is something we haven't done before. And I have to say it's my favourite. It is ancient woodlands. And then on Wildlife Matters main feature, we are starting a series where we're looking at the badger coals. And we're starting at the very beginning with the pilot badger coals. And we're explaining those to you. We'll have our regular features such as nature news and mindful moments. But right now, let's get right on with the action on this week's Wildlife Matters podcast, Nature News. this week's nature news we're going to be looking at a plan to build the world's first octopus farm but it's raised deep concerns amongst scientists over the welfare of these famously intelligent amazing creatures octopuses the farm is in spain's canary islands and it's believed it would raise around one million octopuses annually for food consumption Octopuses have never been intensively farmed before and there are a lot of concerns being raised about the proposed icy water slaughtering method and many are calling that cruel. So let's just have a little look and see what else we can find out. Octopuses caught in the wild using pots, lines and traps are eaten all over the world including the Mediterranean and Asia and Latin America. The race to discover the secret to breeding them in captivity has been going on for decades. It's difficult as the larvae only eat live food and need to be careful in a carefully controlled environment. But the Nouveau Pescanova announced in 2019 that they had made a scientific breakthrough. The prospect of intensively farming octopuses has already led to opposition. Lawmakers in the US state of Washington have already proposed a ban on the practice before it's even got started. The company's plans reveal that the octopuses, which are solitary animals used to the dark, will be kept in tanks with other octopuses at times under constant light. The creatures, the species Octopus vulgaris, would be housed in around 1,000 communal tanks in a two-storey building in the port of Las Palmas in Gran Canaria. This is hard to believe because octopuses are seriously, they're lone animals that live in the deep ocean where it's dark. Putting them together in communal areas just doesn't work. They're not a communal species. They'll be attacking each other. This is uh, crazy. But back to the news report. They would be killed being put into containers of water kept at minus three degrees C. There are currently no welfare rules in place as octopuses have never been commercially farmed before. However, studies have shown that this method of slaughtering fish 
called ice slurry causes a slow and stressful death. The World Organization for Animal Health says it results in poor fish welfare and the Aquaculture Stewardship Council, the leading farm seafood certification scheme, is proposing a ban unless the fish are stunned beforehand. I mean, if their own overseeing bodies are saying how bad these are, you can just imagine that. How, what a just a cruel, slow and painful death that is. Some supermarkets have already moved away from selling fish that have been killed using the ice method, including Tesco's and Morrison's. Professor Peter T, a neurologist at Dartmouth University, told us that to kill them with ice would be a slow death. It would be very cruel and it should not be allowed. Adding that they were intelligent as cats. To supply premium international markets, including the US, South Korea, Japan, the company wants to produce 3,000 tonnes of octopus meat every year. This equates to around 1 million animals, with some 10 to 15 octopuses living in each cubic metre of tank, according to the campaign group Compassion in Well Farming, which has studied the plans. The company's own estimates suggest that there will be a mortality rate of between 10 to 15%. So that's 100 to 150,000 octopuses dying in captivity every year. Back to the news report. Jonathan Birch, Associate Professor at the London School of Economics, led a review of more than 300 scientific studies, which he says shows that octopuses feel pain and pleasure. It led them to being recognised as sentient beings in the UK's Animal Welfare Sentience Act. Professor Birch and his co-authors believe that high welfare octopus farming is in fact impossible and that killing in an ice slurry would not be an acceptable method of killing in any way. Large numbers of octopuses should be, never be kept together in close proximity. Doing this leads to stress, conflict and a high mortality rate. The figure of 10 to 15 percent mortality should not be acceptable in any kind of farming. What a horrific story and all in the quest for food. I really hope uh, that this campaign by Eurogroup for Animals and Compassion in Well Farming is able to stop this company's plans for creating a first farmed octopus product. And that has been this week's Wildlife Matters Nature News. And on this week's Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be having a look at something a bit different, something we haven't done before, looking at habitats. And to start off with, undoubtedly my favourite, ancient woodlands. So let me just explain that a little. The term ancient woodlands has varied meanings and it's dependent on where you are. Ancient woodlands are defined as woodlands that have been permanently wooded 
since 1600 if you're in England or Wales and after 1750 if you're in Scotland. Ancient woodland now covers just 2.5% of the UK forest, making this a rare and indeed endangered habitat. To determine if woodland is ancient, you could research local maps and records or, as I prefer, look at what is growing. Ancient woodlands usually have an abundance of plants that spread slowly over the ground such as wooden enemies, wood sorrels and ransoms or wild garlic and those plants whose seeds fall close to the parent, for example the wild service tree. These plants along with gelder rose, wood spurge and small leaf lime are some of the most likely indicators that the woodland is ancient. One thing we can be certain of is that ancient woodland has been around for centuries and has developed unique communities of plants and animals, many of which aren't found in any other habitat. Ancient woodland is the richest and most biodiverse terrestrial habitat in the UK. Ancient woods are home to more threatened species than any other habitat. In order to qualify as ancient woods, they must contain woody stems that are at least 60 years of age. But even on a microscopic level, the soil in ancient woodlands has layers of humus, which is broken down matter. The mycelium of different fungi live in this soil and also in the woody stems of tree trunks and branches called lignin. Ancient woodland is home to large populations of invertebrates, insects, snails and worms that recycle the forest debris into the richest organic humus. The presence of this organic material is what gives ancient woodlands its wonderful sweet smell. As animals roam, forage and defecate throughout the forest, their waste is added to the organic debris, which provides nutrients for all the living things in the forest. Ancient woods may have been settled for over 6,000 years and will be home to specialist species of insects, birds and mammals that aren't found nowhere else on Earth. The fungi growing in the ground make them important to humans because they provide us with both food and medicine. So let's take a look at what makes an ancient woodland so distinctive. Every woodland, ancient or not, is unique and as individual as you and me. The DNA of woodland is based on the soil structure, the plant species that can thrive and the wildlife they attract. Woodlands were very important to our ancestors. They provided wood for building their shelters, implements, their fuel for cooking and keeping warm. And they were the supermarket and chemists and the factory of their worlds all in one place. Of course, they're also home to many myths and folklore based on the woodlands and the wildlife that lives within them. Many specialist species of insects, birds and mammals have evolved using these woodlands as their homes and are not found anywhere else. The biodiversity in ancient woodlands is complex as it is diverse, with many key plant species being slow to develop and expand. The indicator species for ancient woodlands are usually plants, since plants are static unlike birds and mammals. We use vascular plants, those 
that have well-developed vascular tissue and carry water and minerals throughout the plant. We often use them as indicators of ancient woodland. These are flowering plants, native conifers and ferns. Sometimes we will also use bryophytes or mosses, lichens that grow on trees and seedlings to measure the health of ancient woodland indicator species. In addition to these characteristics, we need a good substrate for the soil on the ground, good primary productivity for the growth rate of the plants and or good secondary productivity or species diversity. So let's take a look at some of the key plant indicator species of an ancient woodland that along with other features would be a good indicator that the woodland we are looking at is in fact classified as ancient. Let's start off with the wooden enemy, which is an early spring flowering plant in the buttercup family. Other common names include windflower, thimbleweed and smell fox due to the musky smell of the leaves. It's a perennial herbaceous plant growing between 5 and 15 centimetres or 2 to 6 inches high. The plants start blooming in March and go right through to May in the UK soon after the foliage emerges from the ground. The flowers are solitary, held above the foliage on short stems with three palmate leaf-like bracts beneath. The flowers of the wood anemone are usually white but may have a pinkish tinge to them. Wood sorrel is an early flowering plant and part of the daisy family. It is often found in similar areas to the wood anemone. It has white flowers with pink or purple veining and a three heart-shaped leaves that resemble clover. There are many plants known as sorrel. The name actually comes from the French word for sour. Wood sorrel has many local names such as fairy bells and wood sour. The flower and stem are both edible with a sharp sour taste, somewhat reminiscent of lemon peel. Wood sorrel was used as a treatment for scurvy as it has a very high vitamin C content. And some people will tell you not to eat a lot of wood sorrel as it contains oxalic acid, which is a mild diuretic that is also found in chocolate, coffee and many pulses. Wood sorrel contains similar amounts and has an imperceptible effect on most humans. Let's take a look now at ransoms or better known as wild garlic. So the name ransoms is from the Saxon word haramasas, probably more widely known now as wild garlic. It is a perennial plant that grows from a bulb. It's a relative of the onion family. In spring, the single base elliptical leaves grow before the white flowers appear between April and June in the UK. In autumn, wild foragers will use the bulb of the plant to flavor their winter salads and stews. Ransoms were used in recipes and were known as healing plants by both the Celts and the Romans. They have several local names, including wild cowleek, cowlick, buckrams, broadleaf garlic, wood garlic, bear leek and bears garlic. The wild service tree, and I had to include this as I spotted my first one in Sussex last year. When mature, they can grow to around 25 metres tall with a trunk diameter of over one metre. The bark is smooth and a white grey colour. 
it's distinctive because it's flaky and it kind of peels away in squarish sections, revealing the dark brown wood beneath. The wild service tree flowers in early spring, five petals, white flowers on cream stems. Wild service trees are hermaphrodite and insect pollinated. In autumn, the fruit forms in bunches and resembles small apples and turns from green to a beautiful russet brown. The wild service tree is one of the common names, but it is also known as the checker or checker tree. First one with a Q, second one with a CK. Another plant to look out for is the hard fern. The hard fern can be identified by its leaves or more correctly fronds that grow directly opposite each other on the stem, giving a herringbone appearance and are known as a single pinnate which means that each frond is complete and not divided. The fronds taper in at the stem and at the tip. Hardy fern is not a food plant for wildlife. There are no specific interests that feed on it either, although red deer have been known to feed on them in an exceptionally hard winter. The rust fungus, Melisenia bleck, is specific to hard ferns and occurs on overwintered fronds. The hard fern does have some medicinal uses. The Celts used the fronds to treat skin problems and sores, and it was also noted that deer rubbed their antler stubs on the hard fern after they had shed their antlers. The leaves were traditionally used as a treatment for stomach problems and lung disorders, whilst the rhizome was made into a concentrated liquor that was used to treat diarrhoea. Saproxylics, our invertebrates, are dependent on dead or decaying wood for part or all of their lives. It's often the larvae of beetles that feed on the decaying wood. Probably the best known example in the UK would be the magnificent stag beetle. The larvae are saproxylic, living and feeding off decaying wood for three maybe up to five years before emerging as an adult stag beetle. The stag beetle is Britain's largest insect and probably the best known of all beetles. The male is easily recognised by its enormous jaws, which resemble a stag's antlers. Although they look dangerous, they can't bite with their antlers, which means that they can't eat with them either. The sole purpose of the antlers is to bite other male stag beetles. These fearsome looking gladiators can only sit nectar during their short adult lives, living between May and August in a single year. It's not the same with the female, although physically smaller, she is capable of giving you a very sharp nip. The violet click beetle is in fact black with a metallic blue sheen and it's around 12 mil long. Their glossy orange larvae known as wireworms, resemble the mealworms that are fed to garden birds. The violet click beetle breeds in decaying wood, but it has some very specific needs. They only breed in the hollows of ash and beech, where the heartwood has decayed into a black mulch like a damp soot. This only occurs in large ancient trees that are hundreds of years old, and they are very rare in themselves. Because of this, the violet click beetle is critically endangered. It's only been recorded in three sites throughout the whole of England, and I haven't yet seen one. 
very interesting is the lemon slug, which is a rare mollock species. It's a vibrant yellow colour and it contrasts with its very dark tentacles. An adult is around 4 centimetres in length and only feeds on mushrooms. This means that October and November can be a particularly good time to spot it, but these distinctive slugs are very rare indeed. The ash black slug though is Britain's largest slug and it can be, wait for this, up to 30 centimetres. Yeah, that's 12 inches long when fully grown. The colour is variable from a pale grey to a jet black. Apart from the sheer size, the main feature is the white to tan coloured stripe that runs from the edge of the mantle to the tip of the tail. The pneumostom or breathing pore is located in its posterior. So I wrote this while sitting in an ancient woodland in Sussex and I think it kind of sums it up and it's a really nice way to end the, this week's uh, Wildlife Matters Investigate. So, the lush green canopy of the ancient woodland was a constant reminder of the long-standing connection between humanity and nature. The light filtering through the trees illuminated the markers of former industry and management. Coppice trees have been cut back down to ground level as part of a cycle of production, with hazel and willow being commons. Pollarding was also employed cutting back the upper branches to create a dense crown that could be used to build fences and cottages. Charcoal kilns, mine pits, ore roasting hearths and furnaces were scattered throughout the woodlands, highlighting how vital these resources were to our ancestors. Alongside them were the remnants of theatre parks and other animal grazing boundaries some of which are still used as parish markers today. As visitors journeyed through the woodlands, it became clear why they had been such an important part of human evolution and a cornerstone of our culture. This is the first in a series where Wildlife Matters will be exploring various types of habitats found throughout the UK. We hope you've enjoyed it and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Wildlife Matters podcast where we sit back and just enjoy a few moments in nature with this week's Wildlife Matters Mindful Moments. And let's see how many of you can recognise the animal on this week's clip. while you're out for your walks here in towns, cities or out in the countryside because these animals are around us pretty much everywhere in the UK and of course for those who didn't get it yet it was the rather wonderful grey squirrel
And welcome back on this week's Wildlife Matters main feature. This is the first in a short series of episodes where we're going to be looking into the badger coals. And for this one, we're starting at the very beginning with the pilot badger coals. Mycobacterium bovis, or bovine TB, is a dangerous aerobic bacterium that when contracted can threaten the health of humans as well as animals such as cattle, deer, cats, dogs, pigs, alpacas and sheep. Back in the 1930s and 40s, this dangerous disease was responsible for an alarming number of cases and deaths. In fact, over 50,000 cases and 2,500 deaths annually. But by the 1960s, all herds were being tested twice for TB and animals which tested positive or reactors as they were known were slaughtered and bovine TB became a notifiable disease as it was zoonotic and a clear risk to humans. The government introduced compulsory cattle testing and devised a compensation program for all the cattle that were destroyed. It was only a decade ago that human contraction of TB from animals was reduced to just a mere handful of cases per year in the UK. Immunisation and the pasteurisation of milk had reduced the number of cases over the last hundred years or so and many believed that it was no longer an issue. But unfortunately, farming practices have also changed over that time with food becoming cheaply produced and this has caused a range of diseases in cattle, including bovine TB. This has been linked to the intensive methods used in modern farming, creating an ironic situation where the production of cheap food has increased the incidence of disease. The farmers face a distinctive predicament. When their cattle contract bovine TB, selling or transporting them is forbidden, leading to serious financial hardship. Vaccines do exist. The BCG, which we will all know when we're all inoculated for TB, but it's difficult to differentiate between wild TB and vaccinated TB. It's worth noting that cattle with BTB lesions are frequently found in the human food chain with the abattoirs being the only safeguard as no government testing is carried out. In 1997, the Krebs report was published that said that there was compelling evidence that badgers were involved in transmitting tuberculosis to cattle. The report recommended that a large-scale field trial be set up to quantify the impact of culling badgers on the incidence of bovine TB in cattle and to determine the effectiveness of strategies to reduce the risk of herd breakdown. In 1998, the independent scientific group, including several members of the Krebs Report Group, formed and called themselves the Independent Scientific Group on Cattle TV, known as the ISG. The ISG planned and oversaw the Randomised Badger Culling Trial, or RBCT as it's best known. This trial killed a total of 9,818 badgers, but it finally concluded that culling badgers would have no meaningful effect on bovine TB in cattle. Now, you may have expected that to be the end of culling badgers. 
However, on the 19th of July 2011, then DEFRA Minister Caroline Spellman announced that the government would carry out two pilot coals, one in Somerset and one in Gloucestershire. This was to be part of the government's bovine TB eradication programme. Landowners who wished to cull badgers would need to apply for a licence from Natural England. These trials will assess whether it is possible to shoot badgers at night with a high velocity rifle and at a rate that will ensure a minimum 70% reduction in the badger population within the trial area that must be at least 150 kilometers squared with secure boundaries. This method of killing was claimed to be more cost effective than the cage trapping methods used in previous trials. These pilot coals got off to a really bad start after DEFRA found they didn't have any accurate data on the number of badgers in the pilot badger cull areas, prompting the now infamous quote from Owen Patterson, the then Minister for the Environment, that the badgers had moved the goalposts. The pilot coals were put back a year to allow DEFRA to create some data. The government, led by David Cameron, chose to ignore the outcome of the RBC trials, although it is still considered to be the benchmark for bovine TB science and research around the world, choosing instead to ignore the data while struggling to find any of their own. The Cameron government sentenced tens of thousands of badgers and cattle to death and started to drive many farms towards bankruptcy. The pilot coals were licensed to take place over six weeks, but the science from the RBCT said that it needed to be a maximum of five days to stop the badgers from leaving the culling area. This effect, known as perturbation, was highlighted in the RBCT, but ignored by the British government. The science said that the only way to prevent perturbation was by ensuring each coal zone had defined hard boundaries. Now, you don't have to be a scientist or an ecologist to know that wild animals such as badgers cross roads all over the UK every night of the year, and sometimes they end up as roadkill. Despite this, DEFRA and Natural England failed to see that the coal zone with road boundaries was insecure. What was even more shocking was the use of rivers as secure boundaries. You see, badgers are amazing swimmers, capable of swimming across and upstream, even in large rivers. It was clear that roads and rivers were not secure against badgers, or indeed pretty much all of our native wildlife. Lord Krebs, the lead scientist on the RBCT trials, expressed his frustration in a statement to the House of Lords on the 21st of October, when he revealed that after nine years of intensive culling, the best possible outcome was a 16% decrease in the rate of rise of bovine TB. Let me try to make that a little clearer. So, after nine years, there would still be more TB than at the starting point in 2013, but the increase in TB would be 16% less than it would have been if the government hadn't killed any badgers. Got it? Good. 
Now, here's another brain twister. Let me add, though, that the 16% reduction in the rate of rise is very different to the 30% reduction in overall bovine TB that the NFU claimed, although they have never provided any evidence to support their statement. Lord Krebs also expressed concern at the wild discrepancies in the badger population estimates given by the Environment Minister Owen Paterson, who first said that between 500 and 800 badgers would be culled, only to revise that figure to a staggering 5,530 just two days later. Lord Krebs' response was, what this underline is that if the policy is to cull at least 70% of badgers, we have to know what the starting number is. The variation from under 1,000 to more than 5,000 in the space of a few days underlines how difficult it is for us to have confidence that the government will be able to instruct the farmers to cull 70% of the badgers if they do not know the starting numbers. So my first question to the minister is, how will he assure us that these numbers are in fact accurate? Well, despite numerous meanings and pleas from the scientists, conservationists and members of the public, conservation charities and groups alike, Natural England issued licenses for the mass culling of badgers in two pilot coal areas of Somerset and Gloucestershire starting in 2013 and to continue into 2014. The licenses allowed for up to 5,530 badgers to be killed by either trapping and shooting or by the use of free shooting for a defined period of six weeks. The independent expert panel was appointed by DEFRA to help ministers evaluate the effectiveness humaneness and safety of the pilot coals in Gloucestershire and Somerset. The Independent Expert Panel or IEP noted that when both trials failed to kill sufficient numbers of badgers within the period given, they were extended on the advice of Chief Vet Nigel Gibbons. However, the government insisted that the IEP was only to concern itself with the initial six weeks of the pilot coal trials. The first assessment had suggested that in those six weeks, 58% of the required number of badgers had been killed in Somerset and 30% in the Gloucestershire pilot. However, the independent panel's analysis, which used a far more precise methodology, found out that less than half of the badgers were killed in both areas over the six weeks. DEFRA had also agreed to a criterion with the IEP for how the trials could be deemed as humane. The standard set was for no more than 5% of the shot badgers to take more than five minutes to die but the expert group found that the time limit was exceeded by between 6.4 and as much as 18% of the shot animals. The expert group, however, did hold back from describing the trial as inhumane because there may be some circumstances in which greater suffering of badgers might be justified. But to me, 
and to many others, it appears that the IEP was operating with at least one hand tied behind their backs and possibly blindfolded by the government. The assessment also found a wide variation in the effectiveness and humaneness of the contractors brought in by the farming groups to kill the badgers. To us, it is apparent from what has been observed and reported that these pilot coals were, in fact, inhumane. The government's two-year pilot coals were an abject failure, with their estimation of badger population wildly inaccurate and the minimum number of badgers to reduce bovine TB far from achieved. Even more abhorrent was the fact that one in five badgers had been killed inhumanely, suffering immensely as it took them over five minutes to die. So what do you think the British government concluded from the, their pilot calls? Well, they had already refused to listen to the science, but also decided to disregard the outcomes of their own pilot calls and thought it would be a good idea to roll the badger calls out to new areas of the country. And, just to ensure that those awkward scientists, professors and animal welfare campaigners couldn't mess them about again, they disbanded the independent expert panel. Now, no one would be able to challenge their estimates, decisions or monitor their figures or claims. Or at least, that's what they thought. The pilot badger calls of 2013 and 14 raise one unavoidable question. Can we trust those in power to make decisions for the greater good? Wildlife Matters will not rest until a thorough investigation is conducted and justice is served for the now over 177,000 badgers that have died, often inhumanely, and all without any other purpose than to secure the votes of the farming community to ensure that the Conservatives remain in government. Now we're going to pause this now because the badger calls are such a large topic and we're going to take it in little bite-sized chunks because there's an awful lot of information in there and a lot of stuff to get your head around. All of it is supported on our website with links as well to the original data. We will be revisiting the Badger Coles again many times in the coming weeks. But for now, that's the end of this week's Wildlife Matters podcast main feature. And that was this week's Wildlife Matters main feature where we explored the badger coals and the pilot coals. Coming up on next week's Wildlife Matters podcast, in our main feature, we are going to be looking at the animals that are being poached all over the world for their body parts. That includes elephants and rhinos, but so many more species that we're going to reveal to you on the next Wildlife Matters podcast. And in Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be looking at what's happening in our oceans, where dolphins are being stolen from the wild for a life in captivity. So we're going to be exposing that on the next Wildlife Matters Investigates. But for now, that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. My name's Nigel Palmer. I have been your host, and this is Wildlife Matters, signing off. See you next time.
And that was this week's Wildlife Matters main feature where we explored the badger coals and the pilot coals. Coming up on next week's Wildlife Matters podcast, in our main feature, we are going to be looking at the animals that are being poached all over the world for their body parts. So that, yes, that includes elephants and rhinos, but so many more species that we're going to reveal to you on the next Wildlife Matters podcast. And in Wildlife Matters Investigates, we're going to be looking at what's happening in our oceans, where dolphins are being stolen from the wild for a life in captivity. So we're going to be exposing that on the next Wildlife Matters Investigates. But for now, that's the end of this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. My name's Nigel Palmer. I have been your host, and this is Wildlife Matters, signing off.